Amen. Thank you to Jennifer. Thank you to the team. Good morning, everyone. I uh, am aware of just how hot it is. Uh, there are only a couple of times I've preached in shorts. Uh, those have been at typically youth summer camps. Uh, I was this close this morning to putting on shorts for, for the sermon. And uh, if you're watching at home and maybe not around and don't know what's happening, uh, we're currently going through a heat wave here in BC. Uh, and it is just absurdly hot. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Yes. Yes. I have to remind you, when I first came to Canada, I thought Canada was just snow and ice. That's what I thought I was coming to. Uh, And here I am getting sunburned in the heat. But we will continue and we will press on regardless. Today marks the end of our journey through the book of Daniel. Uh, And I've had a lot of fun journeying through Daniel. I've also spent a lot of time scratching my head reading through Daniel. I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure many of you have come across passages of Scripture that leave you scratching your head. Uh, You know, you kind of read through this portion and you might go, what on earth is going on in here? And if you've never done that, if you've never come across a passage of Scripture that has confused you or left you a little kind of at a loss for what's going on, well, then you just haven't read enough Scripture. And I would advise you to actually spend some time in the Bible. Uh, now, make no mistake, even as I joke about those kind of portions of Scripture that cause us to ask questions, that cause us to grapple and wrestle, uh, I know there is a big story through the pages of Scripture. There's this narrative of God at work, God's redeeming story through history. And so I kind of take rest in the fact that even though I might come across some passages that are a little more difficult, I'm thankful that the whole of Scripture gives a clear message of God's love for humanity and what God would do to reconcile humanity back to him in relationship through Jesus Christ. Having said that, though, Daniel chapter 11, 10, 11, and 12, sorry, where we're finishing off today, are one of those portions that leave me kind of going, okay, I think I know, but man, there's some portions I just don't know. Uh, While I was reading through and preparing for this, I came across a story that a preacher told of how when he was at seminary studying through and and they kind of worked through the book of Daniel, he got to Daniel 10, 11, and 12, and he had made all his notes on that portion of Scripture. Uh, And then he left his notes on his desk, uh, and he left the room, and his young daughter kind of came into the the room, into the office, sorry, must have found these notes and started scribbling all over them. Uh, you know, to a toddler, paper is paper. That's, that's free real estate for drawing. It doesn't matter what's on there. And so this toddler scribbled all these notes on, on his notes of Daniel 11 and 12. And as he kind of picked it up and, and read them or had a look at those scribbles, he wondered to himself if all of the commentary and all of the preaching on Daniel 11 and 12 is any better than the scribbles his daughter had made. Now, I'm hoping, yes, the commentaries and the preaching add value to it. But that should remind us that this is an interesting and difficult portion that we cannot just simply come to thinking, well, this is exactly what it means. And this is exactly what it says. Daniel 10 to 12 are categorized not simply as prophecy. They're apocalyptic prophecy, kind of on par with the book of Revelation, 
they tell of the apocalypse. They speak of kind of the end times. And that's what apocalypse is. It's, it's writings pertaining to the end of all things when good ultimately overcomes evil. Also known as the end times, the last days. And of course, that immediately makes them the kind of scripture or the passage of scripture that leave us a little bewildered, a little with that sense of scratching our heads. But that doesn't mean we should ignore it, not at all. That means we prayerfully approach it. That means we approach it with humility as we ask God to lead us. Now, of course, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, and I'm talking about us ending a series in the book of Daniel, um, just a super brief recap. You know, you can go and watch the sermons from previous weeks if you missed them. But the series we've been looking at, we've titled God is in Control. That's the theme throughout the book of Daniel. It's this message that God is in control, despite the apparent circumstances, despite what history might tell us, despite what it looks like is going on, ultimately, God is in control. And so when this young Jewish boy from the tribe of Judah, along with many others, is exiled into Babylon, we see God at work in that. And how this youngster who comes into Babylon ultimately outlives a couple of empires and rulers and leaders. This young boy, Daniel, uh, his faith is tried and tested, and he never wavers. Daniel becomes an example to each one of us who read of his story thousands of years later of what it means to be faithful and filled with faith in God. Daniel is far more than simply that guy that was thrown into the lion's den. God gives Daniel this incredible ability to interpret dreams and visions. But not only does God give him that ability, God ultimately gives him dreams and visions as well. God gives Daniel a glimpse of what is to come. God gives Daniel this glimpse of the apocalypse, as it were, and Daniel records part of it. I remember in, when I was studying in college and going through scriptures and one of, our cha- one of our subjects was the end times, otherwise known as eschatology. Uh, and I remember our lecturer kind of over and over reminding us that when we read through scripture, especially apocalyptic prophecy, we need to keep in mind the expression now and not yet. Now and not yet. And what this lecturer meant by that and went to kind of unpack and explain is that often in biblical prophecy pertaining to the end, there is a sense of the now, meaning there's a sense of the immediate future, events that will take place in the here and now. But there's this second layer to them as well as they pertain to the very end, the not yet. And this is what we have to keep in mind as we read through Daniel 10, 11, and 12. It carries with it a sense of now for the immediate future, but it also carries a sense of the not yet, what is to come at the end. If you're faithfully taking notes as we've been going through the title for this morning, under that theme, God is in control, the title is Living in Light of the End. How should I live in light of the end that is to come? Living in light of the end. 
So I'm going to briefly go through Daniel 11 and 12. There's a lot in there. I would encourage you, you go ahead and read through that. I'm not reading both of those chapters in one go. We'll look at just a few verses. Uh, But I want to have a look at some of the history and give it some of that sense of now for Daniel and for the children of Israel. What does this mean for now? And then I want to land by saying, okay, how then do we live? What is the point? Because really, that's got to lead us. As we read through Daniel, we could find all sorts of interesting things, and we might have that sense of, ah, I never really knew that. That, That's fascinating history. But we still have to come to that place of, well, what does it tell us? What does it mean for us who find ourselves living today in the here and now? How do we respond to this? So as we read through Daniel 11 and 12, the first thing we need to notice is that there is the sense of historical accuracy to Daniel's prophecies. Many people have written incredible things about this chapter and how it presents history from Daniel's timeline until the end. So how it presents the course of history. And in fact, Daniel's writings about the course of history are so accurate in so many senses that many critics of Scripture say it could never have been written before the case. It's just too accurate. And there are just too many parts that are spot on about what's coming. So therefore, it must have been written afterwards. Of course, for those of us who believe the Scriptures are accurate and true, we can see that ultimately God is in control. And yes, God knows what's coming. And so God gives Daniel a vision of what is about to take place. And of course, then, these prophecies will be historically accurate as we look ahead. And so God gives Daniel this amazing outline of the immediate future for Daniel, but then the ultimate end for each of us. Again, it's that interplay between the now and the not yet. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 2, the beginning of Daniel 11, starts by looking at the Persian kings that will follow Cyrus the Great. Remember, at this portion of Daniel's vision, we know it's at the end of his life, it's at the end of his ministry, uh, as he's now an old man and he's serving under Cyrus. And so in Daniel 11 verse 2, in this vision, he records three more kings will arise in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And these rulers are known to us in history. The first is Cambyses, the son of Cyrus. Cambyses was overthrown by a usurper who stole his son's name. That usurper's name was Pseudo-Smyrtus. And then the third ruler who came after that was Darius Hystaspus. I've probably massacred that name, but it doesn't matter. And then last would be Xerxes the Great. The same Xerxes the Great we read of in the book of Esther. Xerxes would be the king who attacks the Greek Empire and who was directly involved in creating the hatred of the Persians in Alexander the Great. You heard that name before maybe in history? And that is then the next ruler that comes up. The Greek, Greek Empire under Alexander and his generals. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 3, Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And of course, history shows Alexander the Great's meteoric rise. It's well recorded. But as Daniel 11, verse 4 says, After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. 
It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. You know, many theories abound as to how Alexander the Great died or as to his demise at the young age of 32. One of the theories contends that his own mother poisoned him. That's how messed up his family was. Can you imagine the family dynamics? And Alexander the Great, none of his family uh, succeeded him to the throne. His kingdom was divided between his four generals, the four winds that Daniel speaks about. After Alexander, we see the story and the history of the the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. This is Daniel 11, verse 5, all the way through to 20, which I'm not going to read. You can go and read through there. But basically, this angel gives Daniel a vision of the next 130 years. And this synopsis of battle between the northern Syrian empire under the Seleucids and his successors, and the southern king of Egypt ruled by the Ptolemies and his. And this angel covers this history because Israel is caught right in the middle of it. The exacting detail is overwhelming and amazing. If you follow the history of these two empires and the battles between them, it would make an incredible movie or an incredible series with all the mystery, the drama, the the political espionage, the marriages, the wars, the poisoning, the assassinations, all sorts, as these two empires wage war between each other, trying to overthrow each other. And the Jewish people find themselves in the middle. They find themselves in that place of having to live through all of this. And then Daniel, as he records this history, as he records this vision, he comes to this character known as the Antichrist, this king who exalts himself. And so in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21 to 35, for Daniel, for the immediate now portion, most historians believe that he's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. This dreadful ruler, this ruler with the sense of perverted evil. And this ruler tried to attack and was repelled. And because of his repel, in his anger, in his frustration, in his wrath, he takes it out on the children of Israel. He turns his anger and focuses to the children of God. And we see this preview of something known as the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And there's been countless uh, readings into that and countless attempts to what that means. And in a nutshell, abolishing the daily sacrifice was his means to stop God's worship. To stop the appointed worship of God. And then setting up that abomination that causes desolation was to set in place of the worship of God to now worship a false God. This idolatry in the very place where God is supposed to be worshipped. And again, it's a preview of the coming ultimate uh, destruction that the Antichrist will bring. So even though Daniel records that sense of now in the immediate future and in the immediate future for the children of Israel, Daniel's reminding we shouldn't be surprised when this takes place in the last days, when this takes place in the future. And so we kind of feel to ourselves, well, all hope is lost. 
Look at the trajectory of history. It's just going further away from God and it's just, it's, there's turmoil and there's terror and there's, there's this wrath and there's this battle. How can anyone stand? And then in the middle of Daniel's vision in Daniel 11 verse 32 to 35, we read about the Maccabees. We read about these people who knew their God. And who were strong in the Lord, strong in their God, and who did incredible, amazing things. Some translation speaks about how they did exploits. The amazing thing is they serve God in the midst of trial and trouble. And it gives us that sense of hope that even in that place, we can still stand and worship God and serve. And then right at the end of Daniel 11, verse 36 to 38, We read of the Antichrist and the end. Verse 36 to 38 says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women. Nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. And basically, this final king is the king who blasphemes God, who declares and decides, I have no need for God. I have wealth. I have military might. I have my own power. And so with my own power and even with my own deceit, I will rule. And I will lead people to return and worship me. So what is the point of all of this as we read through just that chapter? Well, we're given this picture of history. And so, so we're kind of asking, well, why does God continue to give this picture to Daniel? Why does God show this element of history to Daniel? That, that sense of the now. And because we look at that now, we're also left to ask, well, what about the not yet? How do we approach this? Should we run away and build bomb shelters and stockpile food and ammunition? Should we, should, what we, what do we do with this constant threat of the coming economic tsunamis and, and world destruction or, or just the uncertainty? And that's how many people live around us today. I was blown away because obviously this was in my mind. And this last Tuesday, I went for a run with my running club, and I got chatting to one of the guys in my running club. Uh, he's not a Christian. He's an agnostic, really well-read, really interesting character. Uh, we often, while we're running, have conversations just on all sorts of subjects, uh, and they're always fascinating. But I was blown away in the, our run this past week how he started talking about the fact that you know he doesn't like where the world is going. He, he's worried about the uncertainty. He's worried about possible economic, economic collapse. He's worried about food shortage and, and water shortages. And so his solution to this worry is to go out and get his gun license so that he can be prepared. And I kind of thought to myself, really? That's your solution to the problems of the world? Get more guns? I think you're on the wrong side of the border for that logic. No offense. And I do apologize for that. That's not even in my notes. 
Might have to say sorry to that one to our American friends because some of them are in the congregation right now. But is that how we should live? Living in the light of the end with this fear and trepidation, thinking that, well, the only solution is to get what I can get to try and help me, to try and defend and provide, and and I will sort out my own. And sadly, that's how too many Christians live. And Daniel reminds us throughout the book of Daniel, if there's one thing we should learn, God is in control. And he calls us to trust him. He calls us to be faithful to him and to live with that sense of hope. That's ultimately what I said to this friend while we were running. I kind of said, you know what? I I hear that. I get that. But we should never lose hope. We should never lose hope that God is still in control, that God is still doing something incredible. We need not be afraid. So what do I do? How then do I live in light of the end of Daniel? Yeah, sure, those prophecies give us historical accuracy. Yeah, sure, they're really interesting as we look through the now portion of them. But as we wait for the not yet, as we wait for that glorious day of the Lord when God will return, when Jesus will come again and call his bride, the church, to be with him for eternity, I think these prophecies call us to be intensely practical. These prophecies call us to be intensely practical, to keep the main thing the main thing. They call us to remind ourselves to love God with all our hearts and minds and strength. They call us to love one another and to love others. You know, early believers and and those who, who worship the Lord in the early church would, know, would have known nothing about the half-hearted devotion that we see in many churches today. Where many people call themselves Christian, yet their lifestyle shows no evidence of Christ. You know, the prophecies that Daniel is given and the, the way Daniel writes to us, they should force us to echo what Joshua said. Choose this day whom you will serve. As Joshua would have said, if it's the God of money, well then choose money. If it's the God of ease and comfort, well then choose ease and comfort. If it's the God of power and prominence, then choose power and prominence. If it's the God of pleasure, then choose the God of pleasure. But don't dare say you worship Jesus Christ as Lord whilst pursuing those gods. So Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the living God. This is what Daniel calls us to. God will never force himself on us. God reveals himself to us and allows us to respond to that invitation or to reject that invitation. My friends, all I can encourage you today is to choose God, to choose to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Daniel 10 to 12 call us to be practical? Why does Daniel 10 to 12 call us to the main things? Because just as we read there, God's hand is seen throughout history. One day, God's timetable will come to an end. And he will call all humanity to give an account. We need to be reminded that God is in control. How then should we live in light of the end? Now, you might have written down there, let's keep the main things the main things. But you might be asking, well, what are the main things? Well, 
The first thing I think of our main thing is our calling. We should live in light of our calling. What is our calling? It is to worship God and share the gospel with the world. It's as simple as that. Our calling is to worship and share. As a church, we should, keep, we should ask what is keeping us from being the hands and feet of Jesus. And where we realize and recognize what it is we should abandon anything that keeps us from what God calls us to do every day. We're invited into that big story of God. I'm so looking forward to the next series that starts next week. Small part, big story. To remind us that there is this big story overarching through history. God's story is unfolding. And we're invited into the small part of that. As we're invited to worship. And as we're invited to impact the world by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do I live in light of the end? Well, I live out my calling. But the the second thing that kind of flows out of our calling in this idea of what are the main things is... It's our unity. We have our calling and we have our unity. Being in harmony with one another. You know, when I read through that portion of Daniel and I read about the Maccabees, and and yes, I know they weren't perfect, so I'm not trying to idolize them. and, And I know that ultimately they still had to appeal to Rome for help in certain times. But I'm reminded there were a people of God who stood up against what was happening. And they did these exploits for the kingdom of heaven. And I ask, what is it that's keeping us today? And I wonder if part of what's keeping it is a lack of harmony. We're called to live in harmony with one another. And when I I think about harmony, we, we saw some illustrations of it this morning as our worship team were leading us. As one singer sings the main part and another singer sings harmony. And it just adds this beauty to it. And it just, it adds depth. It's not a background part in a sense. It's not a less important part. It's coming together and, and coming in harmony to bring unity. You know, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16 to 18, Paul says to the church, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The opposite of that is the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The church divided among itself, not choosing harmony and unity. Let us not be like that church. Let us be as Paul encourages us to do and teaches us to do. Be at peace with each other. Walk in unity, walk in harmony with one another for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel message, and for the sake of impacting the world. Harmony is a beautiful thing. Harmony is created when all the parts come together to make something far greater than the sum of those parts. But you know, getting practical is not just understanding our calling of sharing the gospel as we worship God. It's not just living in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. The main thing as well is our submission to Jesus. Our submission to Jesus. 
Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14 says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, I know I could preach an entire sermon just from that passage of Scripture. Why do I bring it here? It's because as we mature in Christ, the evidence of that maturity is our growing submission to Jesus Christ. How do we do that? By spending time in the Word of God. I'm often kind of, I get frustrated when somebody will talk to me about why they left a church. And sometimes it's, you know, about the worship or about the music or whatever the case might be. But every now and then, somebody will say to me, you know, I left there because I just wasn't getting fed. Well, if you're maturing in Christ, your food is the scripture, the word of God. Don't leave it up to somebody else. Now, if it's heretical preaching, that's a different story. But just because you didn't like the preacher because you thought, ah, I'm not getting fed, it's your responsibility to feed on the Word of God. And as you mature by feeding on the Word of God, that, that's made evident, that's visible as we submit to Jesus. As we see and hear what Jesus is calling us to. As we hear the invitations and the commands and the instructions. As we're trained to choose between good and evil. And we understand that submitting to Jesus not just our own opinions and desires, becomes the key. You know, the Psalms and the prophets teach us that obedience is better than sacrifice. You know, that sacrifice, that blind observance of religious dates or ordinances or whatever, that's not what makes a church or what makes Christians. It's those who have a relationship with Christ and who obey Christ, who submit to Christ. So how should we live in light of the end? We understand our calling. We understand our unity. We live in submission to Christ. And lastly, we consider our ideas about the end. Now you might wonder why on earth does that kind of come in here? Because surely there's some other main things. Well, yes, there probably are. But I want to focus on this because this is what Daniel 11 and 12 speaks about. About the end times. Daniel finishes off in Daniel chapter 12, verse 8 to 13. This is Daniel speaking. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all of this be? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand. But those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. 
You will rest. And then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Yes, there are some days and timelines put in there. But it is very clear that as Daniel gives, uh, sorry, as God gives Daniel this vision, it's very clear that God intends for the vision of Daniel to be sealed up until the time of the end. And this is why Jesus, in response to the questions in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus himself says, About that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As we live in light of the end, we need to be aware of our ideas of the end. And many have tried to predict the day and time of Christ's return, yet every single one has been wrong. No one knows when Christ will return. So you can watch as much CNN or Fox or read the Vancouver Sun or even turn on Al Jazeera or TBN or whatever you want to watch. And it might give you all sorts of glimpses of what's going on in the world. And you might indeed get to that point of saying, you know what, I think we're living in in the end days. But the point is no one knows when that last day will come. Only God himself does. So do not be fooled or led astray by anyone who claims they understand what the Scriptures mean. Or worse, by anyone who claims that God has revealed to them when the end will take place. Yes, we're challenged through the New Testament to be alert. We are challenged to watch, to be prepared, to see as things unfold unfold that we're not fooled. Jesus doesn't want us to be unaware But he wants us to trust him and to walk with him in light of the end. So how do I close? Well, let me go back to that Joshua quote. Have you chosen whom you will serve? Do you know and walk in the calling of Jesus Christ? Are you walking in unity with your brothers and sisters in the church? Do your actions show that you are maturing and growing in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you concerned about fulfilling your mission? We can do lots of busy things and think that we are Christian by doing them. When we're focused on people coming to Jesus, when we're focused on people being restored to relationship with their Heavenly Father, when we're focused on people being harmonized into the body of Christ, That's when we know we are responding to God's call and we're living in that big story as we play our small part within it. Let's pray together. My Heavenly Father, as I read through the book of Daniel and as we draw to a close of Daniel today, I know it's really easy to focus on some of the opening chapters of Daniel And we can pull out themes and messages. And yes, we understand the idea of being faithful, of standing up for our faith, of not wavering even in the face of challenges, even in the threat of persecution to speak up. But Lord, as you moved in Daniel's life, And as you gave him this incredible ability to interpret dreams and visions, so God, we understand you slowly gave him dreams and visions. 
And we understand and, and we see as Daniel recorded what you gave to him, even though there were elements that he couldn't make sense of. We read and, and there's parts where we cannot make sense of. But Lord, we see how accurate it was through the course of history. And so in faith, it, it reminds us that you are in control. And you can see the beginning and the end. You know the whole story. You know what is yet to come. And so because you showed Daniel that vision of the now, we can trust you with the not yet. Because we know you're not finished with this incredible story of redemption. And so God, as we now live in light of the end, Jesus, we don't know when you will return. We don't know whether it will be in a matter of days. Perhaps it will be months, maybe years, maybe even centuries. And so, Jesus, as we live in light of the end and the coming end, I pray that you would help us not lose focus or get distracted by what might be going on around us. And certainly, Lord, I pray that you would help us not be overcome by fear with what's going on around us, but rather, Jesus, we would keep our eyes fixed on you, and that we would see the calling you've placed over us, that calling of worshiping and of serving, of loving God and loving others. So God, I pray that you would help us walk in that calling, give us opportunity to share the gospel with neighbors, with friends, with colleagues, with family even. And then, Lord, as we walk in that calling, we realize we don't do it alone. We do it with brothers and sisters in Christ around us. And so we're, we're called to be family. And, Lord, that means unity and harmony becomes key. If we're fighting with one another, how can we ever hope to tell the world about the peace and grace that Jesus gives us? So this morning, Jesus, I pray for White Rock Baptist Church. I pray that you would help us grow in unity and harmony. I pray for the churches across the peninsula, across the lower mainlander, across BC, across Canada, and yes, across the world. Help us to walk in unity and harmony. And God, as we worship, as we serve, and as we live in light of the end, indeed, we pray that we would see you, God, in control and that you would be glorified. Jesus, be lifted up. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.